You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys here today. Um, one of the things I love about living in this area is that we live so close to the Smoky Mountains. And so I love to hike and I love to get up in the mountains. And when, uh, before I started having kids, I used to like to backpack a, a lot and camp out. And so I remember uh, several years ago, I went on this hike with my brother-in-law, Greg, and uh, we had decided to hike a section of the Appalachian Trail, which is in the Smokies. And so it was going to be a three-day journey. And so we packed up. We were pumped. We were excited. Uh, we were young and dumb and didn't really know what we were doing. And uh, we started at Fontana Dam. And so we were hiking up into the Smokies and so kind of going northeast. And so if you know anything about the trail, you know that is an extremely difficult section of the Appalachian Trail. The ele- uh, elevation change changes so drastically, it's really difficult. And not only that, but it decided just to, to open up on us uh, the, the, the floodgates and it just poured on us. And so we're miserable uh, out of the gate and uh, we're hiking and we're, we're, we're trudging through, you know, we're going to make it. And uh, it got so uh, difficult and, you know, we're taking breaks and uh, the sun started to go down and we were staying in a shelter. If you know anything about the shelters in, in, in the Smokies, they're basically three-sided. They've got a roof and then an open Opening. And there are two wooden platforms uh, in, in, in the deal, very primitive. And so it can fit about eight people on the top, eight people on the bottom if you're really kind of packed in, you know. And so we're hiking, we're tired, the sun had gone down, we had to get our headlamps out. And, 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 and so we're, we're just dying to get to this shelter. When we get to the shelter, we finally see it and we're so excited. Like, finally, we can go and rest. And we, were, we just wanted to crash, and we get in. And as soon as we walk into the shelter, we saw 35 middle school Boy Scouts in there. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not lying. It smelled like urine and Mountain Dew in there. It, it was just disgusting. And we were so devastated. Like, what are we going to do? They were hanging from the rafters. They were everywhere. So it's dark, and, and, and the scout leader said, hey, guys, <laughs> we can scoot over, and you guys can stay here tonight. I said, I would rather you pull my toenails out with pliers than for me to stay in this place with all these kids. Like, I've got a middle school boy. I've seen his room. I don't go in there. <laughs> and so we decided to look at the map and find the next shelter on the trail, which was another three and a half miles, and we were just, like, so depressed. And we were like, we just got to get our head down, and we just got to go. And so we went. We finally got there that night. We just passed out. We were so tired. And uh, we woke up the next morning, and we were so sore. <laughs> we could barely move. And uh, we, we kind of stumbled out of the shelter, and then we saw a, 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 just a, a short distance away this bluff that overlooked the Smokies. And it was absolutely gorgeous. And we just kind of sat there in the quietness of that moment and just stared and enjoyed that. And um, it, 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 was, it was amazing. It made the whole trip really worth it. Um, but because we were so sore, we decided to find another trail, abort the mission, and we came into Cades Cove. I called my wife uh, on a payphone. Back then, we didn't even have cell phones. I had to bum a quarter. I was like a homeless guy in Cades Cove. And uh, bummed a quarter, called her. She came and got us, and it was quite the adventure. But I tell you that because uh, we're, we're starting a brand new series, and, and it's called Life on the Mountain. And in a lot of ways, our spiritual journey uh, is like a, a journey in the mountains. It's very, very difficult. 
It's, uh, it brings with it a lot of unexpected uh, portions and, and a lot of unexpected uh, adversity. But as you climb that mountain uh, and you get to the top, the views are amazing and the rewards can be eternal in the spiritual sense. Uh, but just like our hike, maybe your journey with the Lord has been a lot harder than you expected and and you've been tempted to kind of give up on the Lord. You've been tempted to, to maybe take the easier road in your spiritual life. And you just thought, you know what, I'll just kind of do a different route. The spiritual journey, the spiritual thing with God is just too difficult. Well, as we begin this series today called Life on the Mountain, I, I wanted to name it Life on the Mountain to kind of give you a visual through this whole process because I wanted you to begin to, to look at this and, and understand what it, what it kind of feels like when you follow Jesus. It's kind of like being on top of a mountain. And as you climb that mountain, yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, it's tough. But these views are amazing. And the rewards that he gives to us are, in fact, eternal. And so the image is that when you live life on the mountain, you're living life like Jesus. And, and anytime you start to live for yourself, you're essentially coming down the mountain and you're living life in the valley. And life in the valley is focused on me. Life on the mountain is focused on we. And so we're going to see what it really means to follow Jesus. We're going to see in the series that everything that he teaches us, everything that he wants us to do to follow him is focused on other people. It's others focused. And so the idea here has nothing to do with your circumstances. A lot of times we think when, when things are going really well, uh, we are, we're happy. And when things aren't going well, then we're just going to be unhappy. But we're going to see as we look at the, at the Sermon on the Mount here that our happiness, our joy, the blessing of God has nothing to do with the condition of your life today. Nothing to do with your health, has nothing to do with your physical state, your emotional state today. It has nothing to do with your financial issues. It has nothing to do with your circumstances. Because life on the mountain means that you're living life like Jesus. And when you live like Jesus, you're focused on other people. You're focused on we. And as you focus on others, you begin to understand what it means to be blessed in the Lord. But obviously, when we live life in the valley... I'm not talking about you're having a bad day. I'm talking about you are coming off the mountain, focused on Jesus. You are coming down into the valley to think about yourself only. It's in that moment, that self-focused life, that you really begin to experience, I'll just say it, a miserable life. It's empty when you are living life focused on yourself. And so in the series, we're asking, what does it really look like to follow Jesus? And uh, if you've got your Bibles, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5, because for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus has gathered his disciples. They're sitting on a mountaintop, and they're overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And I've been there, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And so imagine this breathtaking view overlooking this amazing uh, uh, body of water on these rolling hills, very similar to the Smokies. And Jesus is unpacking essentially his theology of what it means to truly follow him. And I believe these three chapters in Matthew 
could have the most profound impact on your spiritual life than any other section in the Bible. And in the first section, it's called traditionally the Beatitudes. And uh, the Beatitudes, it's simply a Latin word that means blessing. And blessing just simply means, or to be blessed means to be happy, or uh, you're going to be happy. And so blessed just simply means that there is a joy in your life that is independent from life circumstances. And so when we talk about being happy, again, we often kind of equate our circumstances to happiness. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here in the first few verses of his sermon. He's talking about a blessedness here that is completely untouchable from life circumstances. Completely untouchable from how someone is treating you at work or how someone in your family has treated you in your past. He's talking about no matter what you are facing, there is this profound joy that reaches out to us even in our pain, even when things are difficult, in our sorrow, in our loss. He provides this joy and this blessing to us. It's going to shine through all the tears of your life. It's going it's to emanate through everything that you experience, even death, as we experience that loss in our life. Jesus, in this blessing, is going to be giving to you. Now, life often feels like a roller coaster. And uh, it's a roller coaster of emotions, right? And, and one of the reasons why it's a roller coaster is so often we just kind of live based on our circumstances, we get so self-focused and, and, and we're so dialed in on what we are going through, what our kids are experiencing at school, what I'm experiencing at work. We get so dialed into all of these details that we totally forget that this joy is separated from any of life's circumstances. So um, no matter if we're depressed, no matter if we're anxious about something today, no matter if you're um, just filled with sorrow today, the Beatitudes, the blessing that God has given to us in Jesus helps us to understand that when we live life on the mountain, he gives us this joy. He gives us be this joy because we are walking in the company of Jesus. And so the, the greatness of these Beatitudes um, is that it's something that you and I as followers of Jesus already have. It's not something that we have to Gain. It's not something that we have to look forward to. It's something that Jesus has already given to us as a result of our faith in him. So in light of that, let's look at the first six verses today. And uh, for the next several weeks, we're going to be walking through this entire sermon. So it says this in verse 1. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, let's think through this a little bit. Let's start with verse uh, 3 here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now you might think, oh man, he's talking about blessing. Jesus is going to talk about being happy and 
what it means to, 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 to be blessed. And, and, and we're going to learn today who actually is a person that is, is, is blessed. And so uh, let's get going, Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Like, wait a minute, that's not really the sermon opener we, we were expecting. How about a, a funny story, kind of grab us in? He's like, no, 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 no. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, uh, if you're taking notes, you might want to jot this down. I'm going to tell you what, it, what I think it means, and then we'll I'll unpack it a little bit. I think it means blessed are those that recognize you're helpless without God, and you've learned to trust God. It's essentially what it, what it means. Now, the Greek word for poor means to cower, to crouch, to, and, 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 and almost to give the image of, of someone who is begging. And so the, the word is used to describe a poverty that is so poor that this person is forced to beg for a living. And so as he begs for a living, he is completely dependent upon the giving of other people. And so if we combine that idea of poverty with the words in spirit, then what we begin to understand is this sense that those who are blessed are those who are desperately poor in their spiritual resources. And, and, and as a result, they realize that they have to have help from outside sources. And so this idea then becomes, okay, when we are saved, when you put your faith in Christ, what you are doing is you are realizing your poverty of spirit. You might not understand it completely, but if you think there's something within you that deserves salvation, then you've totally missed it. You, you, you could be lost today because that is not what the scripture teaches us. In order to receive salvation, scripture says that you and I have to reach this poverty of spirit, this realization that without Jesus, we are nothing, that there is nothing in and of myself there is nothing in or, 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 or any kind of work or anything that you could possibly do that would earn God's favor in your life, that would earn God's approval in your life. There's nothing. Think about that for a minute. There is absolutely nothing that you can do for God to say, that a boy. Didn't you love that if you were in sports as a kid when your dad or your coach would say, that a boy, or give you a good game slap? You know, on the back, I don't know if you can do that anymore. The backside, people call D DCS on you, whatever. But I don't know. I still do it. I think it's a good thing. You, there, there's nothing in and of yourself that would ever turn God's head and say, oh man, this guy gets it. You are 100%. I am 100% totally spiritually bankrupt. And it's not until we realize that bankruptcy and then begin to trust God that we can even experience the blessing of God in our life. But for those who are saved today, the good news is that you have experienced that spiritual poverty, that helplessness and, and, and your need for God. Now, two things happen when you experience that. The, the first thing that happens is that you become detached from the things of the world, you begin to become detached from the things of the world. And then secondly, as you put your trust in God, you become attached more and more to God. So that's a good way to kind of think about it in your life. Are you becoming more and more attached to God and less and less attached to the world? Because if you do that, that is allowing you to trust God more and more and realizing your helplessness without him. Now, the man 
who is poor in spirit, realizes that things mean nothing and God means everything. And so we're growing in that light. We're growing in that vein and understanding. Now, listen, the world is in total disagreement to this. The world says, blessed are the popular and famous. Blessed are the people that, you know, uh, have all the money. Blessed are the, the families that seemingly have everything that you don't have. Right? It's exactly the opposite of how Jesus starts out his sermon. In fact, he says, if you are growing too attached to the material things in your life, you're becoming more and more like the Laodicean church that he warned and rebuked in Revelation chapter 3. Let's take a look at it. Jesus warned the the church in Laodicea. He said, you say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Let's just pause there for a minute. How many times have we lived our life as if, man, I've got plenty. I've got plenty of money. I've got plenty of stuff. And I really don't need anything. Here's how I know. Here's how I know some of us fall into this category. How can I pray for you? I don't know, man. Things are pretty good. Wow. You want to have a stark contrast between somebody who has realized a poverty of their spirit and someone who has acquired enough stuff and they don't feel like they need anything? Right there it is. What's your prayer life look like? What's your prayer list look like? Who or what in your life are you praying for? And if your prayer life is bankrupt, most likely you haven't realized your spirit is bankrupt. He says, whoa, wait a minute here. You've acquired wealth. You feel like you don't need anything, but you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. He says, I am going to provide the spiritual power to forgive you so that you can experience true life. I'm going to bring healing into your life. Not your money, not your wealth. You can allow yourself to think that you can kind of outgrow this idea of poverty of spirit. But essentially, we can never outgrow this. In fact, if you want to grow today, if you want to become closer to Jesus You and I have to both revisit this idea of spiritual poverty and bankruptcy because it's only as we dive into that spiritual bankruptcy that we are awakened to that truth and awakened to that that just poverty and and just, just, just nothingness that I can bring to God that we say, okay, now I can look to God. Okay, now I can receive from God. But the good news is that you're blessed already. If you recognize that you're helpless without God and you're learning to trust him. See, you're blessed. You're you're happy when you do that. That's exactly the opposite of what the world would teach you. You don't want to think negatively about yourself. You want to think positively about yourself, right? Let's all think positively about stuff. And if we think positive thoughts and everything's positive about ourselves, then we're going to live a happy life. It's totally opposite of what Jesus says. Think less of yourself and more of him. And then you'll be happy. Look at verse four again. Verse four says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Man, I love this. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Now, the connection between the first beatitude and the second is really important. 
The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, is, is, a, is a knowledge. It's kind of like a mental um, understanding. But then this second beatitude connects emotionally to us. Because when we realize our poverty of spirit and our helplessness spiritually without God, then it moves us into an emotional mourning for our sin. It takes us to this level of, of grief in our life. Now, this is important. I mean, the, the, the idea of mourning is something that, you know, we want to run from. But the word used here in the Greek, it, it, it's this word that, that literally is the most, uh, it's the deepest form of the word mourn. Um, I believe it was used uh, to describe someone who had lost a loved one. And it, it, it describes someone who is so emotional because of this devastating loss that it fills them with uncontrollable tears. It's a grief that completely takes hold of a man's life. Some of you might have experienced this, and, and, and so we think, okay, well, what are we mourning? But I don't think Jesus is saying, mourn because your boyfriend broke up with you, and you will be comforted. Mourn because, yet again, you maxed out your credit card, and you don't have money to pay it. Like, that's not what he's saying. Remember the, the context of the scripture. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And so I believe what he is saying here is, is blessed are those who desperately mourn over their sin. You might want to write this down. Blessed are those who desperately mourn over their sin. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, again, this is the blessing that you have already received because you did this. First, you did this when you came to Christ, but as a believer, we continually understand that we are desperately in need of a Savior, that our sin has wrecked us, and so we desperately mourn over that sin. Now, Romans chapter 3, Paul reminds us of how desperate we are, right? Here's what Romans says in chapter 3, verse 11. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Go home for some more encouragement. Finish Romans 3 today. <laughs> like he continues. I was like, I think that's enough for, 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 for the moment. My goodness, there's no one who understands. None of us were, were seeking after God. He was seeking after us. And because he tapped us on the shoulder and he said, hey, Trent, I'm right here. Then I went, oh, Okay, right? No one seeks him. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. You see, left to yourself, you and I are without hope. But the greatest day of your life, the greatest day of my life, is when I realize this. God, through his grace, helped me to realize my sin and my need for a savior. See, that is the blessing. When we actually realize that, and, and listen, in our culture, we, we overdose on amusement, we overdose on entertainment, and the reason why we do that is because we want to numb ourselves to the pain of our sin. And if I can numb myself from the pain of my sin, I can get through today. But guess what? I need another daggone Netflix series to help me, and then I need another drink, or I need another pill, or I need another sexual experience, or then I need another whatever it is that you run to. And as we run to these things, we kind of self-medicate. We've got an entire industry um, called the pharmaceutical industry that is drugging us out of our mourning, 
the psychiatrist industry that is helping us walk through all of this morning to get our attention off of this pain, and it's not working. It's not working for you. But Jesus says, look, don't run from your sin, mourn over your sin. Because the thing that really changes you is when you recognize that was sin, that it was your fault, and you admit that. But not only that, when you admit it and you decide to do what the Bible says, which is to repent of that, to turn away from that. We don't just turn away from sin and turn to another sin. We don't, we don't turn from sin and turn to another self-medicating promise of hope, you know, whatever drug, whatever TV show, whatever amusement. We turn from sin and we turn to Jesus. And in that mourning process, we do what Peter says in his sermon in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. He says, repent and, and turn from your sin. Why? He says, so that times of refreshing might come to you. Some of you need a time of refreshing. And you've got to stop running from the reality of your sin and begin to recognize it, accept it, and mourn over it. Now, there's a lot of churches and pastors that don't want to talk about sin any longer. Let's just talk about things that are happy and, hey, let's just keep it, keep an upbeat spirit here and things are going to be fantastic and you're doing great. You just got to believe. And the result of that is essentially a very shallow church, very, very shallow, theological, you know, weak body of believers, in, in, in my opinion. And the worst thing I could do as a pastor is to tell you that your sin is not a big deal. That's the worst thing I could do for you today. The worst thing I could tell you is, is it's not a big deal, and if it's not a big deal, guess what? The cross wasn't necessary. But here's the reality. The, the truth is sin is real, and the cross was necessary because sin is robbing you of joy. It's robbing you of eternal life. It's robbing you of a relationship with Jesus, and if you don't mourn over your sin, then you're going to miss the blessing. You're going to miss the promise, which is what? The Spirit of God comforts you. We're constantly looking for comfort in our life. Our parents comforted us. If you had good parents, they comforted us when we were young and it felt good. When mom gave you a hug after a hard day, it felt good. If your spouse gives you a hug after a hard day, that comfort feels good. Why? Because we want to experience comfort because we're constantly experiencing difficulties and pain. That's why you're running from one guy to the next guy because you're looking for that comfort, right? But he says, that's not how you get it. This is the blessing. Look, you, you, can, you can live life in the valley and focus on yourself and, and, and try your path all day long. It's not going to bring you the comfort that only Jesus brings. He says, look, I, I want you to mourn over your sin. Recognize it. Repent from it. And then you begin to experience the blessing of a comforted life. So the way the joy that comes into your life, the, the way of this blessing, the pathway to that is that you experience this forgiveness. I, I, I mourn over my sin, and through that desperate sorrow, I have a broken heart. I'm broken over that sin. And Jesus says you are blessed when you do that. 
You're intensely sorry because of that sin, but here's the reality. When that experience happens, Jesus forgives you. That leads to the comfort, knowing, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've messed up. I'm trying to fix it. I can't. I want to do what Christ tells me to do. I want to mourn over my sin, recognize it, embrace it fully. I have not just messed up. I haven't just made mistakes. I am a sinner. I am undone. I have not sought after God. However, through the grace of God, when I recognize that and I mourn over that, the forgiveness of Jesus immediately comes to your life. And that's where the comfort flows. I know that I'm forgiven. I know that I'm a wretched man, but praise God, he's comforted me through the forgiving power of Jesus Christ who died on the cross. Isn't that amazing? Like that's the comfort you're longing for today. That's what you're searching for. Nothing else is going to bring that into your life. Now, I think part of our, our issue is that some of us have experienced a broken heart. And, and, and you've experienced sin in your life. You've, you've broke God's heart. You've broken someone else's heart because of your sin. So, so here's the reality. Jesus says, blessed is the man who is intensely sorry for his sin, who is heartbroken for what he has done. And so I want to invite you today, maybe for the first time, as a follower of Jesus, to embrace the forgiveness of Jesus Christ today. Ma'am, you are forgiven, bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. Sir, no matter what you are facing, if your life has been committed to Christ, he has forgiven you. Stand up and walk in that comfort and, and live in that power. Verse 5, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Now, meekness does not mean weakness. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very, it's an awesome word. One, one of the guys in my Bible study came across this word this year, and it kind of totally revolutionized his, his life, and he started a whole ministry around this word. The, the Greek word for meekness here is the word preus, uh, and it literally means exercising God's strength under control. It's demonstrating power without being harsh. And so it was used to describe a tame animal like a, a, a horse that was bridled. And, and, and so the man riding the horse has this strong, powerful uh, animal, but he is controlled by the bridle. And so that's kind of the idea of preus, a man that God has filled with power, filled with potential and strength, and yet he must be, by the power of the Spirit, submitted to the Lordship of Jesus and control his tongue, control his actions. And so he demonstrates self-control. And that's exactly what Jesus is teaching us here. You might write this down. Blessed are those who are self-controlled and have the humility to realize their weakness. This is what he's talking about here. That, that you will be blessed. You are living a happy and blessed life when you are living self-controlled and you have humility to realize your, your, your weakness. That's what this word preus literally means. It could also be translated as humble. 
And so humility recognizes our weakness. It, it's thinking of others more than it's thinking of ourself. And Jesus says, I am gentle, I am humble in heart. And so Jesus showed us his strength and he showed us his, his humility when he didn't retaliate when they were beating him before they took him to the cross, when they spit on him, they mocked him. He didn't retaliate. That was self-controlled strength. He had the power to do whatever he wanted to do in that moment, and yet he did not. He lived with self-control. His friends betrayed him, and they all ran away from him, and he didn't say a bad word about him. His best friend, Peter, denied him, and what did he do? He restored him, and he gave him a brand new ministry. Judas betrayed him. And he called him a friend. This is strength and power. Right? This is self-control. And this is what, what, what he's calling us to as he is dying on the cross. He's not cussing them out. He's saying, Father, forgive them. This is what a self-controlled life begins to look like. But when it comes to matters of, of faith and the welfare of others... Jesus was strong, and he would, he would continually rebuke the Pharisees. He continually uh, would get upset if the disciples didn't let children come to him. Right? And, and, and one day he ripped out a whip and turned over tables because everyone was selling uh, different things in the temple. Like Jesus had this strong side about him, right? When we hear the word meek, we often think weak or shy. That's not what it means. It means a power and a strength that is self-controlled, that thinks of others more than it thinks of ourself. You see, the one who is weak, is gentle, is humble. And if you're vengeful, beware. If you're angry and you're weak, look like a bunch of, you know, explosive text messages and social media rants, watch out. The warning is given to you. Verse 6, verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be now, today, very few of us know what it feels like to be really hungry or to be really thirsty. But in the ancient world, it would have been totally different. I mean, they would have experienced hunger and thirst like none of us in this room have ever experienced. I mean, when you're hungry, not even when you're hungry, when there's the slightest like kind of feeling that, you know, there might be some grumbling down there, boom, bag of chips. It's easy, right? Out of chips. Go to the store, get chips. It's very easy for us. Thirsty? Like, just go to the refrigerator to get your filtered tap water, right? And so it's very, very easy for us. I, uh, not long ago, uh, I've got four kids, three teenagers, and one 10-year-old. And, and so I don't know if you know what that feels like, but it can be very uh, emotional, to say the least. Uh, three girls, one boy. And so one day, um, we, we had practice. One of the kids had a game, and so they had been at school all day, and it was just an exhausting day, and they hadn't eaten dinner. So I was bringing all the kids home, and uh, my wife was at home, and she was making dinner. And uh, you know how cranky kids can get when they're hungry? Like, it, it's, it, it's very difficult. And so you need Jesus in those moments. And we, we come through the door, and my oldest daughter, Bailey, she was like, Mom, I am starving. Right? You know that statement. I'm starving. My stomach is literally eating itself. Right? Mike is like, oh, well, dinner is ready. And she pulled the, the, the lid off of the iron skillet, and this beautiful Italian dish was there, chicken and some other kind of stuff. Goodness was going on. And I was excited. Bailey had an issue with it um, because it had mushrooms in it and it had spinach in it. 
So as soon as she saw that, she said, there's no way I'm eating that. And I'm like, wait a minute. Five seconds ago, you were starving, right? And your stomach was eating itself. And now all of a sudden, you're not eating that. And the, and the reason is because we have no idea what it really feels like to starve. We have no idea what it really feels like to thirst. Nine million people die of hunger-related issues every year in our world. Statistically, they say that Americans, our intake of calories every day is 3,600 calories. The average Central African intakes uh, only 1,800 calories to kind of put it into perspective. And, And so we don't really know what this feels like. We spend over $250 billion a year on fast food. And so we we don't quite get this, but this verse is describing a hunger and a thirst that that a man, a woman would have. And and, and if they do not eat, if they do not drink, then they would die. And so really, it's really kind of like a question. How much do you really want righteousness? How much do you really want holiness in your life? Do you want it so much that you're starving for it, that you're thirsting for it, that you have to have it? If you're taking notes, here's the fourth point, final point. Blessed are those who long for total righteousness. I think that's what he means here. The man who is blessed is not necessarily the man who achieves total righteousness, but he has a hunger. He longs for it. It's not that he's reaching total holiness. But he longs for this holiness. Now, the, the, the Greek word that's used here for hunger and thirst is, is written in a tense. That means that if a man wants bread, he doesn't just want a slice of bread. He wants the whole loaf. It's written in such a way that if, if a man wants a drink of water, he doesn't just want a glass of water. He wants the whole pitcher. In other words, he wants everything. He wants all of it. So Jesus says, blessed, happy are you if you long for total and complete righteousness, like we don't need any more Big Macs. We don't need any more loaded nacho tacos. What we need is a hunger and thirst for righteousness. You need a hunger and a thirst for more of God in your life. And some of you kind of feel it. You kind of have that itch. You're like, oh yeah, I want more of God. But then But then you walk out the doors of this building, you pick up your phone, and boom, you're back on Twitter, you're back on Facebook, you're back on work, you're back on running and gunning, you're back on everything, and then your mind is totally distracted. But every Sunday you come in here and you're like, hmm, what he's talking about is what I want. Every Sunday morning you come in here and you feel that itch. Listen, your growth happens when you leave this building. Uh, when you go work out, uh, scientists, this is like a, a fact. Like if you go work out in the weight room and you're lifting weights, when you're lifting weights, you're not actually building muscle. You're breaking down muscle. And then when you rest, your body absorbs the protein and w- whatever other nutrients your, your, your muscles need, and, and, and then they grow. So your muscles grow when you're not working out, but as a result of working out. It's kind of like church. You come here for the workout. Scripture's going to break us down. And then we're going to go home. And through the power of prayer and continued study of the word of God, 
fellowship with other believers, in my small group being encouraged and being prayed for, me, myself, praying for other people and lifting other people up and encouraging them, it's through that experience that that strength and growth happens. Some of you have this hunger, but you're not really exercising in the right way. This is why you need a small group. This is why every week we need to be here. This is why every Monday morning, this is the feast that you need to have right here. God has already prepared a full five-course meal, a steak dinner that you can open up every single day and feed from. A spiritual hunger, a spiritual thirst is what our bodies, what our spirit, what our church needs. A hunger to be in the presence of God's people, to raise our hands in worship. A hunger to serve this community out of that worship and out of that thirst and out of that hunger. Your marriage needs you. Your wife needs you to have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Your kids. Listen, if you're feeding at the world's table, you're only demonstrating what the world has, has, is, is feeding you. You are what you eat. You, we've all heard that, right? This is not a diet sermon, by the way. We all got to change our diets, Pastor Trent. You are what you eat. If you're feeding from the, the world's table today, then you're going to begin to manifest the world's attitudes. You're going to begin to, to manifest the world's actions and thoughts and behaviors and that's what your spouse is going to see, and that's what your kids are going to see. Listen, if you're sitting down at the table of the world and feasting on the entertainment and on the junk that this world is feeding us, it will affect and it will manifest itself in everything that you do. Why not act on the thirst and the hunger for more of God and sit down at the table and feast on his word? Just think what could happen. Just think what could happen in this church if we together had a hunger and a thirst so deep, so deep that we could not survive if we didn't have more of God. That priority of worship, that priority of worship, that priority of singing, that priority of being in the word of God and, 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 and gathering with the people of God and, and desiring more of God was so strong in us, it would change everything in your life. It would change everything in your family. So I close with this. Listen, it, again, these are, this is not something that we, we long for. We're blessed in Christ already with each one of these beatitudes. You already have them. You, you don't have to thirst more for God for him to approve you. You don't have to mourn you know, harder over your sin for God to approve you or to love you more today. That's not how it works. He already approves of you and loves you because of Christ. So he's asking you to, to dial in and to embrace these blessings, this happiness. And we just need to be reminded of it today. We need to understand it, and then we need to begin to live it out in our heart and in our life. And man, I'm excited about the next several weeks. The Sermon on the Mount will change your life. And uh, it's funny how you can read it and think, oh, man, that's pretty good. But then when you just dial in on words and, and what Jesus is actually teaching, it's just like, whoa, whoa. This is what it means to live life on the mountain, to walk with Jesus. It's focused on others. 
And as you do that, man, the views are beautiful. The rewards are eternal. And that's what we're chasing today. We're chasing Jesus. We want to walk with him. And we're going to close today with a song that really kind of amplifies everything that we're talking about today. And perhaps maybe today you've never given your life to Christ. You've never experienced these blessings that we've talked about. And so in just a, a, a moment, our section leaders are going to be available for you and just encourage you to, to go to one of them and to say, I need Jesus. And they'll talk with you and encourage you. The Karen Prayer Room, as always, in the atrium is there for you to receive uh, prayer, to receive any counsel that you might need today. Let's, let's pray, and we're going to close today with an opportunity to hunger and thirst for more of God today through worship. Lord, we thank you, and we love you, and we praise you for who you are. Thank you for these words. Thank you for this the sermon that Jesus preached. It's really the greatest sermon we will ever read. And so, Lord, as we sing to you, as we close in prayer today, God, we lift up our hearts to you. And we worship you. We long, God, for a hunger and thirst for more of you today. Fill us. Give us this desire. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.